at the New Indian, we have with us Professor Vamsi Juluri. He's an Indian academic based in San Francisco. He teaches at the University of San Francisco. Welcome to Reason, the New Indians platform where we get to the reason behind the issues that concern you. Professor, welcome to the New Indian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Professor Juluri, you recently wrote a piece in the New Indian Express, and I thought that uh, piece was quite radical in its content. It was quite uh, bold in many ways because it uh, touched upon India-United States relationship. You wrote about Hindus in America and the lack of power and influence that the Hindu community in the U.S. have. So my question to you is this, that despite the fact that Indian diaspora in the United States is a large community, it's one of the biggest communities, diaspora communities in the U.S. And yet you were claiming that the, in the U.S. does not have much power and influence. Why is that? Can you explain it for our audience? Yes, if you pay attention to just the last few months of what has been uh, happening here within the diaspora here in the United States, uh, you can see that there is a desperate attempt at forgetting and distraction. Okay? Until uh, the middle of May or so, uh, a large part of the Indian American diaspora was standing outside um, you know, uh, a politician's office here in uh, Sacramento and uh, protesting what they called a highly discriminatory apartheid-like bill, you know, which was the SB 403 uh, being proposed by um, Senator Aisha Wahab, who represents constituency where there's a lot of uh, Indian American voters, um, as it were. And uh, if even a fraction of the criticisms that you know groups like um, the HAF and Kona and uh, I think the other group, the um, uh, Hindu Adivasi Dalit Bahujan uh, community, and so on, are making about this bill and the discourse about caste that has led to this bill, including the Cisco caste case, which was finally thrown out. Uh, if even a fraction of these criticisms are true. And if the Indian American community was even remotely influential, there would be no further talk of such a bill by the Democratic Party, by the ruling party. That is at least how it seems to be in a logical world. And yet you have this absurd, startling, perplexing situation where a group of people who have campaigned, fundraised, voted for this politician who has pretty much decided to slam the door on their faces, no matter what they say about this very, very controversial piece of legislation. Uh, and we can perhaps talk more if you about... Can, if you can, for, just for the sake of our audience, explain what the bill is uh, with respect to the caste, Indian, you know, Hindu caste. I think it would be really helpful for our audience. Very well. So this is a state bill uh, called SP403, and it is... Um, um, supposed to stop or make 
caste discrimination illegal, which on the face of it, I think most Indian Americans would agree with. Uh, nobody wants to see any kind of discrimination, whether it's race, gender, sexuality, national origin, caste, etc. But the reason the caste bill, I think, has been controversial is because of the way in which um, the rationale for it has been laid out by many of its proponents in the last few years. So um, the arguments that have been made, the examples that have been given, many of them, not maybe not all of them, but many of them uh, seem to be rather tenuous. So for example, uh, there has been an issue made about names, about, uh, you know, uh, there is an allegation that Hindus in particular, when they come to the United States, they deliberately bring their surnames along so that caste oppressed communities feel terrorized by these upper caste surnames. So that is one example, which is very, very debatable considering what happens. So for example, if I may share with your viewers, I was not known as Vamsi Juluri when I was in school back in India. I was just Vamsi Krishna with a whole bunch of initials, right? Because it was a very Telugu thing to do in that generation. So my parents gave me a very, very long name. So I was known as JBH Vamsi Krishna. But when I applied for my US visa, they wanted me to put everything into this first name, last name thing. So my surname sort of became my last name now. And that's how I'm known as. And now to equate that to caste is very complicated because if I just look at, you know, the last name Juluri on Twitter, I find so many different people who are very clearly from very, very different uh, communities. And uh, so it's very hard to predict, you know, one's quote unquote caste and, uh, you know, where one fits in the supposed hierarchy and so on. But in any case, names have been made one issue and names actually have a very sordid history of racial profiling, which we can come back to later. The second example is things about, um, you know, uh, upper caste Indians uh, allegedly patting their colleagues on the back to see if they have a sacred thread, which, um, you know, seems rather, um, you know, designed to terrorize uh, the work people in the workplace here in the US. Um, you know, uh, and again, there too, it is complicated because Maybe some generations ago, the thread was more closely associated with some communities. But uh, I don't know if you can see a picture of my family's guru, Sri Satya Sai Baba. Every year, thousands of people are initiated into the sacred thread in his ashram and nobody checks their you know, caste profile yeah. or anything. So we are very much two or three generations, at least, into a society where you know, wearing a sacred thread is not a mark of ancestral caste privilege, you know, at least, yeah. uh, you know, and definitely I, I doubt that's the case in the diaspora. So with examples as tenuous and debatable like this, the argument has been made for the last few years, and it has been made in mainstream public fora, and it has been made in universities, in radio, media, etc. So that part of it is something I believe the Indian American community is not that well aware of. Um, so what has happened now is this bill has come along. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of Indians just vaguely hear that there is a legislation perhaps to make caste illegal. And of course, if you support equality, you support uh, anti-caste laws, and you don't really understand what's going on. But there are also people um, who are, you know, aware of all the way the discourse has been built up. They're also aware that you know, the main issue on which this argument was made, which is that 
these two engineers at Cisco had discriminated against uh, the quote-unquote lower caste colleague, uh, that case has finally been thrown out after years, and we mm -hmm. didn't even have information all these years because of, I think, the court rules or whatever. Uh, but two or three key points seem to have come out now, one of which is that the engineer who was promoted in the place of the person who was allegedly, uh, you know, not given the promotion also happened to be Dalit. Um, so th there is a lot of information on this. Uh, but anyway, to sort of go back to the big picture, mm. my, in terms of what I believe or assert is the utter uh, lack of uh, political coherence in the community here. Are you saying that Indian Hindu community in the US is unaware about the kind of politics that is being played against them uh, in the US? Uh, are you also saying that they are helpless and they do not have any power whatsoever to counter this demonization of Hindus. Absolutely, because you know the Indian, the Hindu com activist community, the Hindu organizations, typically for the last 20, 30 years that I have seen, have been oriented towards building their organizations. Uh, towards and the way they do it is largely through uh, an internal propaganda system of um, you know seemingly giving access to power by setting up selfies and photo ops with politicians and so on um, and there is very little that has been accomplished in my view and most of the things that have that seem like achievements you know finally after all these years you have you know one or two resolutions saying okay we recognize hindu phobia that is too little too late and mm. because it is, and I'm not entirely blaming these organizations too, because they're a microcosm of a peculiarly sociologically crippled uh, immigrant community. Uh, it's a much, much deeper problem. Despite the fact that Hindu organizations, which claim to be fighting for uh, the Hindu cause or issues related to the Hindu in the US, uh, what are these organizations doing? And why do you think they are crippled? they are deluded by wealth and social status and utter snobbery towards people in the fields where these kind of issues are institutionally and professionally and intellectually and politically sorted out in the United States. Okay, So I gave a talk on this a couple of years ago. It's on Sangam Talks. And I laid out the path so that people could understand how it works. Uh, any kind of a demand for social or political change in the US typically begins on the basis of rigorous research done by credentialed scholars in the social sciences. So step one always would be to support scholars in the social sciences who could do the kind of research that would give us the data that we need to say make a case and say, hey, these are the ways in which we think Hindu phobia is real. These are the ways in which it's probably not that concerning. Um, these are the things that need to be done. So, for example, in my own case, I focus mainly on the media because I'm a media researcher. And I can very clearly say that there is systemic bias in media coverage of uh, you know, Hinduism uh, uh, as well as India. So you need um, sociologists, historians, criminologists. And there's not a lot of people who would be willing to do it. That is also a fact because academia has largely leaned in a very, very different direction. We are part of a society where there is 
a lot of polarization and problems within academia too. But having said that, um, you know, the extent to which I think academics have been gaslit um, just by the sheer snobbery of uh, the wealth. I mean, sometimes you even wonder if these people are so wealthy, uh, yeah. why are you complaining about Hindophobia? And that is a strong criticism that is made. So um, I think they have been crippled in the sense that um, they have not seen uh, what is coming. They're blinded by their economic privilege. They don't fight Hindophobia by when they're thinking about the poor, Hindus, you know, being slaughtered in Pakistan or Bangladesh, or, you know, the, the hundreds of poor, you know, temple priests um, struggling with no money because the governments control temples in India and uh, uh, run them like a business. Uh, so they're not thinking about the, or even in the US, they don't think about the working class. You know, they're all, the, their eyes are always turned up. And uh, so in, I mean, if I have to really simplify it, basically you're saying that the Hindu community and Hindu organizations in the US are focused more on their own economic well-being. They are more interested in climbing the ladder socially in the US society and hardly bothered about what discrimination Hindus are facing or what kind of uh, you know demonization the community is facing by other communities in the US. So uh, now, okay, I understand this. My point is that if uh, the Hindu community uh, leaders or the Hindu community institutions, Hindu community corporate leaders are focused only on wealth, only on generating and retaining wealth. If uh, Hindu community is just happy with, or you can say, uh, organizations and Hindu leaders, uh, corporate leaders are just happy with who they are, and uh, they don't they don't feel that there is any discrimination and demonization. Uh, don't you think that you might be actually uh, exaggerating? I'm being the devil's advocate here. You are exaggerating. You're exaggerating the claim that Hindus are getting discriminated. No, they, that is exactly what the critics say, right? They say that uh, there is no systemic Hindu phobia and that Hindu that is one criticism. But, I mean, the last two, three years, yes, you know, HAF and Kona and various Hindu organizations are talking about Hindu phobia. Um, I pointed it out about three years ago, when two or three years ago when I did the Sangam talks. I went to all their websites. And, you know, there were a few mentions here and there of Hindu human rights, say, in Pakistan and things. And occasionally in the last 20 years, there were some mentions. But the term Hindophobia itself, the research that a few people have started doing on it, none of it was present. Because the focus was really on, as you said, on educating the next generation, educating pol politicians and civic leaders and so on. But, you know, unless you have invested in education, you know, in a professional manner, uh, everything else is just, you know, people showing up at talking points. Um, so the criticisms, to answer your question, the criticisms that are being made about Hindu groups now talking about Hinduphobia is, one, as you said, there is no systemic discrimination, there is no Hinduphobia. Second, there is also the criticism being made by skeptics that the word Hinduphobia is only being used to, you know, um, cover up criticism of the Modi government. And it's, um, you know, it's not, it's a bad faith claim, as they call it. Uh, then, uh, and we, in, in the New York Times, there was an op-ed by this Harvard uh, professor a couple of days ago, 
uh, who once again repeated that. And she said, um, you know, that uh, employers and university administrators should watch out for students and employees who talk about Hinduphobia because they may be members of the Modi factions who have infiltrated the United States. Now, again, you know, it's I pointed it out. I, I can see it for the last two, three years when some of these groups do talk about Hinduphobia. They tend to talk about it when the Modi government or the RSS or BJP are, are criticized. So there is no clarity. They have not, um, you know, ever organized a protest against the Indian consulate to say, hey, why, why were the Palgar sadhus killed? Right? It's just that, you know, the moment BJP comes to power, it's uh, almost like they have decided, um, you know, there is no Hindu phobia in India now, except, say, in non-BJP rule states. So it is cynical. They're using it very, very cynically. I'm an academic, so I want to see Hindu phobia recognized as a, you know, as human rights concern. And for that, it needs to be done by scholars with integrity and supported by activists and community leaders with integrity and towards this particular issue. Why do you refer to discrimination against Hindus or this demonization of Hindus in the US as Hindu phobia? Uh, do you think that it's only Hindus who are getting targeted and not, let's say, Indian Muslims or let's say Indian Sikhs and Indian other, other religious denominations? Why do you think that it is only Hindu phobia? And also, <coughs> also, when you say Hindu phobia, when you describe this discrimination as Hindu phobia, aren't you actually equating it with Islamophobia, which is a different um, kettle of fish altogether? Because there are like Islamophobia has several dimensions. One there is terrorism attached to Islam, Islamic, you know, extremism. There is a Islamic uh, political movement, uh, you know, that which has been there for for a long time. There is a history between um, the Christian Crusades and the uh, Islamists. So there is so much. There is so much uh, baggage attached to uh, Islamophobia that uh, don't you feel? that Hindu phobia might not be the correct uh, term to actually describe what Hindus are facing in the US. You know, I have never ever denied that other forms of discrimination do exist against other people. In fact, I have always recognized the limited validity of the word Islamophobia against many Hindu groups. Because again, there is a issue here. You know, I try to follow uh, a certain amount of scholarly discipline when I use my words, because I am accountable to my you know community here okay and in the internet it's a free for all because hindu groups and hindu activists and internet hindus not all but generally tend to just copy paste or you know mm. turn into an echo chamber so i know like a lot of people who say hindu phobia will say islamophobia is a myth then there are people who say um, it's not hindu phobia but hindu mesia and why are we sounding like muslim so i i've seen this for about 15 20 years now because this is all i do i study this professionally with the rigor of a media researcher. So I've seen how social media has distorted and destroyed a lot of potential in the Hindu activist community. So to answer the first part of your question, for the record, I do not deny the existence of other forms of discrimination. So I don't know where that idea even can come from. Um, I used to teach a class on media and violence and terrorism from 2001 till about 2008. And we 
witness what happened at the time, you know, the kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric that was played up by, you know, Fox News and the right wing here, um, you know, Guantanamo Bay, the screenings. And we also recognize the fact that sometimes attacks on Sikhs and Hindus, in addition to Muslims, also takes place because of Islamophobia. Right, Srinivas Kuchubutla, the Telugu Hindu boy from young man from Hyderabad, my hometown, was killed in Kansas City, was mistaken for an Iranian. And this was in the wake yeah. of Trump's, you know, anti-Muslim rhetoric. So, you know, Islamophobia is real. Now, is it used sometimes to uh, deflect from real criticism of jihadism and terrorism? Yes, of course, people do it. And that is, you know, unacceptable too. But there is a context and a time and a place um, you know, where one cannot deny that it's, it, it, has, it is a reasonable criticism that has been made and it has been built. Unlike our community, it has been built by scholars, you know, the, the, the discourse on Islamophobia and before that on anti-Semitism and racism and sexism. Um, it has been built in the universities in this country because social science researchers have been supported. Now, to answer the second part of the, your question, which is, should Hindus use the word Hinduphobia because it sounds like Islamophobia and Islam has a different history vis-a-vis -vis the West? Now, again, I think this question is coming up because Hindu activists tend to sort of just echo each other's worries um, or, you know, from whatever is the flavor of the month on the internet, on the shifting sands of social media trends and hashtags. Um, but I have been following this rigorously and I can tell you two or three things. The term Hinduphobia precedes the coinage of the term Islamophobia, okay? Sure. And this was this research was done by Sarah Gates, who's a doctoral student in cultural studies in Australia and the founder of Hindu Human Rights Australia, one of the few Hindu organizations outside the Sangh. I think that is a very important caveat to make because for good or for bad, the Sangh tends to dominate Hindu activism and uh, that comes with its own baggage and problems for those of us who are Hindu activists outside the Sangh. So Sarah Gates found that the earliest use of the term Hindu phobia in the English language was in an 1866 book uh, by a British historian who used it to refer to, uh, I think, uh, um, I forget, uh, another history book. Then 1883, a newspaper in England uses it again. Then around 1910 or so, a, a, an Indian Bengali student uh, writing in the US uses it. Uh, 1950, Sadat Patel uses it. So this is a word that was used fairly routinely to describe what, for generations, Hindus or uh, in the, you know pe or people following the ancestral traditions of uh, the Indian subcontinent faced first from you know the Islamic imperialists, then from the European Christian imperialists, and more recently from you know watered down versions of the same. So Hindu phobia has the term has been used for at least. 150 years now to describe anti-Hindu prejudice, whether it's coming from religious bigotry or from not more recently from so-called secular uh, zealots, mm -hmm. so-called. Now, so this is a term that goes back a long time. Now, it started to get popularized again, I think about 20 years ago. Um, I think some of the, uh, again, the Hindu human rights UK people started to use it in the context, I believe, mainly first primarily of minority Hindus in Pakistan, right? Then it started getting used in the U.S., most famously by Rajiv Malhotra, uh, who, and uh, later it spread a little bit. But it's only in the last two years that I think 
Sarah Gates has demonstrated this term is 200, I mean, well, 150 years old. Now look at the community's response to this word as well as the critics' response. Okay, the critics' response we've already talked about. They say uh, there's the South Asia uh, activist collective glossary or something, which some South Asia studies professors and activists put out. And there, you know, they kind of just totally gaslight the reality on this. They don't ever acknowledge what Sarah has found that the term was used under, you know, the colonial jurists. They just say that Hinduphobia is a coinage of the Hindu right um, and it appropriates Islamophobia. Totally false. Now, the communities, you know, flip-flopping on the word Hinduphobia. Here's my take on this. The Hindu activist community, particularly here in the US and also I think in UK, because it's not organized, academically, it is not following the lead of a, think, a scholarly think tank, okay? Plus it is crippled by snobbery uh, where we have money so we know it all. What they end up doing, I've seen this again and again from the time of the textbooks issue to the present, they get very scared to say the most obvious things because they have not understood the society they live in, okay? They have only encountered the society as opportunists who come here, get jobs, make money, and they're pretty good at that seemingly. Beyond that, they don't understand what is happening to their children, what is happening to their future, what their role is, why they're being called parasites by both the left and the right in this country. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, They don't understand it. So what they do is where they could straight away say, oh, you have a professor who's insulting Rama, or you have a, a person in authority who's using a phrase, a, a media person using the cowpiss slur, that is racist. That is racism, that's Hinduphobia, you should be fired. Simple, they don't say that because they're scared to say racism, they're scared to say Hinduphobia because they think the boss will, um, you know, because they want to be good minorities. They want to be butlers yeah. as my puts it, okay? Then, mm -hmm. Two or three days later, suddenly, I don't know whether it's because they all gather and get some kind of group energy or bravado, that cowardice vanishes and then reckless bravado comes. They will go and say the stupidest, most racist Islamophobia thing. And this yeah. happened in UK. And this happened in UK, I understand, because there was a Hindu community leader there who in the early 2000s, when hate speech, anti-hate speech legislation, anti-hate legislation was being proposed in the UK, it if I recall correctly, the legislation said, you know, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and Hinduphobia will all be recognized as, you know, hate crimes. Mm -hmm. This person said, I'm the, as I spoke as a Hindu community leader and had it canceled saying, you know, we don't want our boys, our Hindus to be associated with Muslims. We are the good people. Nobody dislikes us or something. So now they shot themselves in the foot. And then I'm told the same person a little later made very Islamophobic comments and had to resign. So this community has no awareness or education in the social science approach to a social problem. So what they do is, you know, weekends they gather, they talk to each other on Zoom or, um, you know, on the internet. Uh, um, and, and, you know, so I can see how it swings this way, it swings that way. If I may leave our viewers with a vivid ima um, image, uh, do, do you remember the movie Lagan? Uh, yes. You know, when Amir Khan is training the villagers to play cricket, the first time they're all fielding, the ball goes in one direction. All the fielders run to the ball. 
Yeah. That is activism for you. This idea that we all have <laughs> our own position. Look, the people who go and talk to politicians in Washington, I'm not dissing them. Okay, good, go and do it. But then there are other people too. There are people who have to do research. There are people who have to create the art, which is going to persuade mm -hmm. people that there is a problem. And everybody do what you can in your place. But then, you know, if you have this kind of, um, you know, insanity where um, you don't see your own limitations, okay? And I think the biggest problem mm -hmm. now in our communities, we don't see the limitations. Um, you know, it's led by people who think who are, who are they're fighting for the American dream. They're not fighting for Hindus. They're fighting to say, we want meritocracy. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I don't want to, again, be more negative than I need to. Now, uh, in the last, I would say 10 years, it seems even though Hindu community may not know uh, who they are, what they are, and what they are doing in the US, uh, you know, apart from earning money and a good livelihood, it seems that the Hindu community vote back is critical for both the Democrats and Republicans. We did see that uh, Donald Trump tried to uh, woo the Indian uh, vote bank when Prime Minister Modi visited last time when Trump was uh, in power. We saw a grand reception for Prime Minister Modi at the White House yesterday, day before. And we saw this huge Indian community also present there. And it seemed that, uh, it seemed, it suggested uh, as if the Democrats were also wooing uh, the Indian community and, you know, particularly, you know, rooting it through Prime Minister Modi. So, uh, do you think that the community is not even aware that they do have, uh, they do have one critical mass, second, they are a vote bank and they are essential to the politics of the U.S. and therefore the policies of the U.S. as well? See, that has to be mobilized. I mean, in itself, it's a spectacle and it's a joke. It's a tragic comic spectacle. Because again, I mean, in a different time, I perhaps would not have been this harsh, you know, because I have commented uh, about the earlier visits of Prime Minister Modi and things. And I did feel there was a lot of style and uh, over substance, but I was not this, you know, uh, I think vehement in my criticism as I've been now, because you can clearly see what is happening. You know, these votes don't really... I mean, these votes are meaningless because, yeah, it may be true that, you know, there's a, there's donations coming from Indian Americans, as that uh, Obama story suggests, uh, you know, people do want votes. Sure, politicians want votes. Uh, they, they want the votes, yeah. But then, why are we in a situation where they can get the votes through murderous flattery? Because that's the situation here, right? I mean, just imagine the representative the for a constituency which is full of Indian engineers who are privately cribbing like oh my god what is going to happen now you know um, our people um, they're going to be so many frivolous lawsuits our children are going to be uh, demonized they're going to be called the KKK just for you know wearing a vibudi or wearing a sacred thread um, so the, all these fears but then you know it's become so easy to manipulate uh, this particular community because you know, this idea of organization too, if I may say, there is, again, it's replicating this old 1940s, 50s Indian uh, political kind of organization where people think if you get people together, get bodies together, you have achieved unity. You know, that is just impossible in this digital age when, 
you know, we are living in a landscape of ideas and words and images. So the community has no collective uh, sense of the danger. It has no sense of even a collective uh, um, identity. Uh, identity or belonging, if you will. Um, so what has happened is it's very easy. So until the middle of May, you know, uh, the Democratic Party can slam the doors on its a big part of its donors saying, you just get lost. We're going to just pass this bill where we tell you what your caste is, what your religion is, what you do may or may not be caste oppressive. We're going to just, you know, do whatever we like to you. And, and you know, we won't even listen to you. You know, that is how arrogant they are right at the moment. Mm -hmm. And a few days later, because a bunch of leaders get called to the White House and all the Indian channels go gaga, showing people dancing and shouting mogi. I mean, who would have respect for a community which goes and dances modi modi on the street, in, you know, in front of the White House a few days after they're also saying, oh my God, this is apartheid caste laws coming for us. So... This is, I mean, a pathetically crippled community, I'm sorry to say. But again, I'm, I'm not talking about disunity as a cause of our problems. I'm saying, I'm trying to understand it sociologically as an effect. So mm. I think the, the one way to understand it is by realigning how we think about identity, about Hinduism, about being Indian American, etc., our relationship to other communities, and what this hour even is. So I, I think... I have proposed this idea of a vertical conception in time because I think historically the idea of Hinduism as a mass religion or a congregational religion is simply not there. Okay, So, mm -hmm. and I mean, the whole world typically, if you go more than 2,000 years ago, was not organized into mass societies. Societies were very local and culture, traditions, identity, everything was vertical. It went over time, one generation to the other. It's only with you know the rise of Christianity and then Islam and then through secular modernity uh, and nationalism yeah. that you have everybody being organized into mass societies. And naturally, for at least a hundred years now, you know Hindus have also understood that when you're the only people who are microscopic, you're a micro nation really, and there are these vast conglomerations also premised on a very intolerant understanding of your existence, saying convert or die or yeah. or, or flee. I mean, given that situation, yes, Hindus have tried for 100 years to organize in response to these pressures, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, and now I think particularly in the case of this tiny minority community, I know we feel good saying we are three or four, we're a big diaspora. But I mean, out of 350 million people, we're still like 1%. Okay. And the few of us who are very wealthy, who are CEOs or management or whatever, let's face it, not one of us is there because we are representing a collective interest. We are there largely because we are nice guys and maybe we are okay at our jobs or whatever. And we are being conditioned. And this is where I think my interest in propaganda makes me think we need to understand this as a persuasion phenomenon that we're caught up in. We are being Persuaded to believe we are more powerful than we are, uh, but the facts tell me we are not, and we better wake up. Okay, I think uh, this brings me to the fundamental question: that if uh, Indians, whether Hindus or Muslims or any any other religious uh, community, is immigrating to the United States of America or to um, any other Western country, 
uh, once once you become a citizen you and you you're trying to assimilate yourself in the uh, majoritarian society is it uh, isn't it like critics would say that by focusing too much on your hindu identity or on your uh, heritage uh, you are basically creating a dual identity you are create you are actually giving uh, more prominence to your identity that you actually left behind in the country that uh, your ancestors are from two two answers to your question i mean first of all i think this is an internal myth a colonial myth we have internalized that we somehow need to assimilate which means uh, you know we have to erase ourselves and pretend to be something we are not uh, and let's face it i mean a lot you know a lot of people in india are also going through that because we have been given this idea that our personal and our collective betterment is premised on leaving our ancestral mm. heritage and the past and everything behind you know mm. and we have not recognized that this is a very old propaganda tool you know the severing of intergenerational ties you know nature yeah. in nature i mean human beings have always existed in vertical um yeah. uh, cultural flows i mean i'm not saying it's unchanging right polytheism survive because we adapt you know and uh, so i think microscopically we figure out what to keep what to change and i think in all, all our own families in the last three four generations um it's only the last two three generations we see a lot of it both adaptation as well as abandonment for better mm -hmm. or for so i think ultimately what we keep or don't keep it's best decided at in a society in a culture like ours from one family to the to the next you know there is there is no mass hindu dogma mm -hmm. now how you said that and i respect that i think we have to respect that fluidity and politistic freedom and so on but here is the important understanding we need i think this is where we have an information gap okay and this also affects the way hindu organizations function here we when somebody says you know why don't you assimilate why are you not being like the polish or somebody else uh, this and that we always tend or or when somebody brings up say caste or something we end up immediately going into uh, a half informed defense or attempt to explain who we are and you know the most useful takeaway i, I think we can take from the social sciences is just knowing we don't know and most yeah. hindus start saying we don't know just know that we don't know like i know only a fraction of our ancestral philosophy and heritage i mean my temple priest will know a lot more than me but then my temple priest will not know the social sciences he will not know the history of xenophobia in the us that i know more he will not know how mm. propaganda and social media manipulate you and me that i will know so in any case to answer your question see there are two things one is the choice about what we keep what we adapt i think it should be for each of us that's good but this is where i think hindu americans are mistaken if you think that you know we have some obligation to assimilate and we'll be accepted or something you know nobody in western society has been spared racism simply because they tried to escape okay now a hundred years ago almost to the date around the time of the first world war there was an enormous propaganda campaign that was unleashed in the us on german americans okay around the time of world war 1 and it was xenophobic 
you know, they created this. And imagine German Americans, they're as American as apple pie, I guess, you know, they're Protestant, yeah. right? They're, you know, yeah. they're very, very integral and very old school part of the society. And there was a huge xenophobic campaign on, on German Americans. And they tried very hard to prove their loyalty. And guess what some of these German Americans did? Especially the uh, GBCDs, huh? I, I don't know, ABCGs. I ABCDs. Guess. <laughs> ABCDs. They formed, you know, German cultural organizations where they tried to prove that they were actually American and it's those bad new Germans who had not adapted. Wow. So, you know, that happened. Soon after that, an even more infamous example, the Japanese-American internment. Hmm. Right? So you had children children who were born in this country who just because their ancestors were Japanese, they were all taken away and locked up. Now, of course, yeah. everyone apologizes. So it goes back even, even more. I was reading a, you know, a classic book by, um, on the history of uh, conversion by uh, uh, Susan Jacoby, I believe. If you go back about four or 500 years to Spain, right, where, you know, and anti-Semitism is as, you know, the only thing I think that's older than Hindu phobia historically is anti-Semitism. Yeah. The Jews in Spain, many of them converted to mm. Christianity. But yeah. two, three generations after they converted, they were still persecuted. Mm. For not being, you know, really, you know, uh, yeah. Christian. Goa Inquisition, mm. I understand this happened. So what I'm saying is, I think if you look at it vertically in terms of three or four generations, okay, mm. what has happened to, say, those of us who are now in our 40s or 50s who are parents, compared mm. to the generation before, the generation mm. after, whether mm. we're in India or here. Mm. And then recognize how for each generation, there is a set of horizontal coercive pressures that have been coming on us. Call it... Mm propaganda, call it manipulation. Um, you know, it could be from the Indian state, it could be from the BJP, it could be from the Congress, here it could be from mm. both parties, it could be from lobbies. Um, mm. What is the best way forward? I mean, how important is it, let's say, to be very, very stark about this? Because yesterday, I completed my mother's sixth month puja. How important is it to everybody who's listening, that after you finish your time, your karma in this body or in this life. A hundred years from now, your grandchildren will be offering a rice ball to the birds or to the rivers and saying the name of your, you know. If, if yeah. that is Hinduism for you, then it's worth fighting for. If Hinduism just means gathering and boasting about how rich you are, oh man, you know, that's your yeah. style, not me, you know. <laughs> I hope okay, that makes so sense. yes, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Uh, but but then you know, an Indian in the U.S. Uh, or ABCD in the U.S. American born, confused they see <laughs> would say that uh, he does feel a certain attachment and he does relate to Prime Minister Modi, and that's why he's cheerleading for Prime Minister Modi uh, outside the uh, White House. Uh, what would you say to that? I'm not being judgmental personally. Mm. I'm being, you know, a little harsh as a social scientist who's alarmed mm. <laughs> at what's yeah. going on. Yeah. And alarmed yeah. particularly at what I see as the ineffectiveness in our communication strategies. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so, for example, uh, since you mentioned cheering, 
you know the a few months ago there were protests i think in in london at the hmm. uh, the indian consulate was attacked right hmm. yeah and so people went there and i've seen this several times including i, I think i first noticed about two, three years ago, when there was a Kashmiri, small Kashmiri Pandit community protest in, in Washington. Yeah. And I found it very strange. I, I don't know whether it was deliberate framing or uh, by, by the newspapers or what. They took pictures when the people there were smiling and laughing. So I pointed it out to one of these Hindu groups which had shared the picture, saying, look, when they're talking about something very painful, there are I'm glad, I respect the fact that the Kashmiri Hindu community actually shows up, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, as, as you did, you know, in Washington, as, as Social Pandit Ji does, as so many others are doing, I really respect that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but when somebody is in a protest, why are pictures being shared of them laughing and joking? And that happened again in the outside the Indian consulate, you know, like a couple of months ago. Uh, this video clip sort of went viral where one of the Indian young Indian women there was teaching a policeman how to dance. Mm. So when there has been an attack, so when you want to say that you're, there is something called Hindu phobia or Hindu misia, call it what you will, when, the, when you're facing racism, when you're facing violence, yeah. when people have killed you, they've blown up. Mm. I mean, imagine the Kanishka bombing yeah. animation, I think happened yeah. recently. So when people face militancy and that kind of violence, and unfortunately, this has not been communicated because our community has not invested in researchers who will archive it and document it in scholarly mm -hmm. journals, nor do we have the media investment to, you know, get the mm -hmm. word out. There, you know, so what has happened is, you know, we are disorganized in terms of communication, in terms of memory, in terms of political engagement. So when people show up outside, I'm glad it's a big thing showing up. We need to introspect. Why is it that? We have this tendency to go, to go and laugh and dance and make a party of everything when there is a problem, when we are unable to communicate that we are facing problems. See, once we do that, once we say, hey, look, you know, this particular legislation is, you know, racist, it's mm. uh, racial mm. profiling, religious profiling. Um, we face terrorism, you know, from mm. um, these militant groups. Once you can say that, after that, if you still want to just say Modi Modi or, you know, celebrate and dance on the street, okay, fine. Then you come across as somebody, you know, okay, who's very chill. I mean, I mean you're, yeah. you're able to fight and relax about it. But at the moment, it comes across like we are not serious about anything. We're not serious about mm. our own lives. We're not serious about yeah. our gods, about yeah. the truth. So that is the problem with that. Well, this has been a truly enlightening conversation with you. It's a real honor and privilege to speak with you today. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, really. It's been really enlightening. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Ji. Thank you. Bye.